0: This episode was brought to you by Connect Rocket. Nobody stands up your EOC faster. Hello and welcome. You're listening to EPIC Podcast, Emergency Preparedness in Canada. My name is Grayson, and this special Emergency Preparedness Week episode is entitled Principles of Preparedness, Rethinking Education Programs. In this episode, we'll be discussing some of the theory around effective public risk communication and preparedness education, and identifying some barriers and issues that are commonly faced by those tasked with preparing the public. We'll also be asking the rather nerve-wracking question for an educational podcast, is what we're doing even working? So to that end, I'll be speaking with Epic Podcast producer and soon-to-be co-host, Sarah Hun, who also happens to be a preparedness education expert. All this and more on this episode of Epic Podcast, current, relevant, Canadian. Well, this is a very special episode of Epic Podcast because I get to interview one of my co-hosts, Sarah. Welcome to the show officially, and thank you for coming. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background?
1: Thanks, Grayson. So excited to to be here and uh, to officially. Be talking. (laughs) I live in BC. Uh, My main portfolio in my work right now is public education for emergency preparedness. So I did my undergrad in environmental studies and geography at UVic. So I learned all about how, you know, hazards work, how they affect people, that kind of thing. And then went on and did my graduate certificate in emergency management to learn how to actually you know use all that how to help people and then getting into the field i started out as a volunteer um, for public education. So I did presentations and I helped at events um, and then got a job in it. And now I'm on my third <laughs> municipality uh, doing public education and I've done that throughout. Uh, so I would say my whole career I've probably done hundreds and hundreds of uh, emergency preparedness workshops and presentations and website updates and um, and all that stuff. So I've talked to lots of different people and, and really just trying to help people be more prepared for emergencies.
0: It's always good to sort of examine what we do and what we're teaching. So I wonder if you could give us a kind of a bit of a summary of what we're currently doing during these awareness campaigns or educational campaigns in emergency management and what needs to change.
1: Totally, yeah. So I think that traditional public education campaigns do not work. They're not effective in creating behavior change, which I think is the main reason why we do them. <laughs> um, you know, I think in in our work we are mandated to tell people about risks. um, uh, And we need to tell people the types of hazards that can happen. But beyond that, there isn't a lot of, you know, legislation around how we need to prepare people for emergencies. So things like Emergency Preparedness Week are initiatives to create awareness uh, around it. And I think I would say the idea is to get people more prepared to create behavior change. But it's It's not necessarily effective. (laughs) Yeah, so to start, I think most municipalities, and I will preface this by saying also um, completely aware that all levels of government are completely under-resourced and understaffed and and underpaid to do any type of, of emergency management work. So public education is usually not a priority. It's usually one of the you know, things at the bottom, beyond doing your hazard risk assessment and doing your emergency plan and, you know, responding to actual events and recovering from actual events. And, you know, if you have time, and if you hope, <laughs> you you hope to get to get to public education. And I've been fortunate in the roles that I've had that we, you know, and the, the communities that I've worked for, they have like myself, a designated person to do public education, but that's really not common. Um, I think in BC, so I've worked now I'm on the third municipality that has this position. And I think there's maybe two other municipalities across the entire province that have a dedicated person doing public education. So I will preface everything I'm saying <laughs> with that, that it's uh, that that's hard. But I think then because of that, Our campaigns that we do focus traditionally on, you know, a a social media, messaging, maybe pamphlets. Um, I know here in BC, Prepared BC does great messaging. Um, They have a lot of great resources, especially in the last few years. And that's usually what Emergency Preparedness Week is focused on is, here's all these materials. Hey, did you know emergencies can happen? Here's some things to help you out. And maybe some targeted things if there, you know, if there's an event, hey, come to our event or come to a presentation, um, that type of thing. That's what I've seen traditionally uh, for emergency preparedness weeks. However, <laughs> uh, research is showing us that that type of campaign, the pamphlet campaigns, the websites, the social media, it does help people know about things, uh, have awareness about things, but it doesn't actually create change, which I think is what we want.
0: (laughs) Fill that barrier between awareness and action. You mentioned that it's not working. What we're doing right now is not working. Uh, Defend that statement. How do you know it's not working? (laughs)
1: Well, uh, one of my favorite studies, uh, specifically about this, it's from 1981, so it's a little old, but um, 1981, Scott Geller, uh, it was on how do we get residents to conserve energy, um, and and looking specifically at is the the way that we're doing education working to get people to con- to conserve energy. So what they did, they had a three-hour workshop with 40 participants. So they brought everyone in, they told people, you know, why it's important to conserve energy, steps they could take to better conserve energy, you know, how that would help them, how it would be better, going through all this education. Um, and afterwards, you know, or they did you know, they asked them questions before, during and after of, you know, how, how aware of all these things and all of them reported uh, greater awareness of the issues, um, a better appreciation of the steps that they need to take. And they all also said that they have a willingness to change or a willingness to take action. Um, but then when they did a follow up of these 40 participants to see, okay, well, did, did you do any of those things that, that we talked about? Um, Only one of the 40 people lowered their hot water thermostat temperature, which was one of the steps that they were told that they could take. Only eight of the 40 installed low flow shower heads. Um, And then you find out that, okay, so eight people like, okay, I guess that's that's okay. It would be good to see more. Uh, And then you find out that all 40 participants actually received a free low flow shower head that they could install themselves so you have people that are obviously they they're, they they self identified as someone that wants to conserve energy because they signed up for this course. They took this course, they took a three hour course. That's a long, long time. They learned a lot of information. They all said that they learned something that they wanted to change, they cared about changing. Um, and then they were even given a free thing uh, that they didn't you know, didn't have to take extra steps to do very much. All they had to do was uh, was to install it. And only eight of the 40 participants did. So obviously, that's just one study. But uh, there are so many similar studies that have done specifically in the like sustainability green initiative, uh, kind of workplace around, you know, getting people to make changes. And and that's one of my favorite studies. And I always, always talk about it, because I think it really reflects what we see in emergency programs, um, as well. I've done Lots of, as I said, hundreds of presentations to, to get people prepared. Everyone always, oh, wow, that was so amazing. You know, you told us so much. I learned so much. I really cared about this stuff. Uh, but when you follow with them afterwards, they haven't necessarily Even when I've talked to other people that work in emergency preparedness, even myself, um, it wasn't until like five years in of of telling people what to have in their kit that I personally even had everything that I told other people to have, right? So, uh, and this is something that obviously I really care about. I know everything that I need to put in my kit. I, you know, I I have all the motivation that I should, and I'm still not doing it. And it's the same with other volunteers that I've talked to, other staff people that I've talked to. Um, you know, they they don't. And other research is is showing us too. Yeah, like not we're we're not prepared, or we're not taking those steps that uh, that we want people to take.
0: So where where is the barrier here? If they've got the desire, if they've gotten the knowledge, if they even got the equipment and materials and and uh, ability to do this, then what's the gap and how do you overcome it?
1: Yeah, I think there's a lot of (laughs) there's a lot of different barriers um, and for different people and for different things. Uh, The province of BC did a study, I believe it was in 2018, about, you know, where the state of preparedness um, for the province and and asking people, you know, yeah, how, how do you learn? What motivates you to learn? What are some barriers? Obviously, big ones are um, time, I, you know, time to put all these things together, space this is a really big one, um, especially when we're telling people to get a bunch of supplies and if they're living in a studio apartment, you know, you don't have space for, for all these things, the money it takes and the cost to put all these things together is sometimes perceived as, as prohibitive, even if that's not actually the case. I think there's a lot of assumptions around what it means to, to do all of these things. Um, And then also, I think there's a perception or we know that there's a perception of either I'll be fine um, and I don't I don't need to worry about it or it the disaster is going to be so big that what's what's the point um, in trying uh, BC Hydro puts out reports uh, fairly regularly about you know the state of, of preparedness um, and really interesting things there uh, research there around, Um, Even though there's increased concern around severe weather, so especially in BC, the the 2020 report was looking at, obviously, post-2021 atmospheric river events. And, okay, yeah, more people are concerned, uh, increase of concern over last year, but still 64% said that they haven't taken any steps to prepare. So even though most people are concerned, more people are more concerned than last year, still not taking steps. And I think uh, one of the big issues that we need to address as practitioners, as public education experts, um, is the steps that we're actually asking people to do. When I first learned about all of this um, behavioral psychology stuff and, and looking, at in, looking into this, I went through our emergency preparedness workshop, which was like our 90-minute presentation that we used um, that I had already presented probably hundreds of times around how to get people prepared for emergencies, and the a number of discrete single actions that we asked people to take were in the dozens. It was like, you know, every single step that you're asking, like every single piece of equipment that you need or supplies, you know, different types of kits that you need, different aspects that you need in your plan, different people that you have to talk about, about your plan, exercising your plan, exercising different aspects of your plan. You know, all of these things, it really add up and is very overwhelming. You know, how how do you get people to do everything? Um, And I think that that's really challenging. And it's something that uh, we saw done really well during COVID. Uh, You saw that, you know, there was lots of different ways to to stay safe from from COVID. But, you know, especially right at the beginning, very clear individual messaging of wash your hands with warm soap and water for 20 seconds. Stay six feet or two meters apart from people. You know, those are very easy, um, obvious, clear messaging about what people could do. And I don't think right now we have the same type of really clear messaging for emergency preparedness. Even if we say something like um, right now, like Public Safety Canada and province of BC, they have three steps to preparedness, which are or know your risks, make a plan and get your kit together. But even all of those things require an extra, you know, twenty or thirty steps within them. So, um, yeah, it's just the, this sense of. How do we be, pre- be prepared is, is is really overwhelming I think and, and unclear uh, for people and that's not even getting into uh, specific hazard preparedness as well when we talk about earthquake preparedness of you know making sure you uh, secure large furniture or um, making sure that you don't have you know something above your bed that's going to fall onto you or having a sp- Pair of spare shoes underneath your bed, so that when something does happen, you could put those on. You know, there's so many steps for that. For extreme heat, which we've seen a lot of in the last few years, there's so many step- individual steps that you need to take to to be prepared. Um, and and I think it's just it's unrealistic to expect <laughs> to expect people to do all of them. But then also because there's so many things, people get overwhelmed and then maybe don't do any of them. Another big aspect um, in terms of the behavioral psychology social psychology aspect is a lot of these things that we're telling people to do are relatively private or personal individual steps things that are happening in the home. Uh, When we think about a good example of this is mask wearing. You know at the beginning when not not a lot of people were wearing masks a majority of people weren't wearing masks you wouldn't want to wear a mask either because you want to do what everyone else is doing. Then you get to a point where everyone's wearing a mask and if you aren't wearing a mask you feel left out so therefore you you start adopting wearing the mask and that we've kind of seen that curve, you know, come and go, uh, depending on how things went. But even if you had a really internal strong sense of whether I should wear a mask or not, what other people were doing around you is really influential to what those steps take. And unfortunately that doesn't necessarily really translate to a lot of the things that we are asking people to do in terms of, um, having a kits or or having a plan or you know hazard proofing your home and and those types of things so i think for me those are the two two big things that i see that go beyond just the people don't have time people don't have money people don't have motivation people don't have space that whole that whole other (laughs) conversation i think that um that people kind of default on too
0: Alright, so how do we, uh, I'm, I'm trying not to say bully, how do we leverage, <laughs> leverage social pressures to, to get people to to prepare then? Because I, I know what you're saying, you know, uh, I, I work in health, I understood the, the need for the mask, and the moment the mandates were dropped where I live, it took me one time for getting my mask in a a supermarket to never wear a mask again in public so it really is about seeing it everywhere and being you know reinforced oh oh i need my mask i almost forgot Uh, that sort of mentality so can that be created for preparedness is that even realistic
1: yeah, I think I think it is. <laughs> I think I think it 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 requires a bit of creativity, <laughs> maybe. Um, but I do think we see it in places like Japan, for instance, where their preparedness for earthquakes is so much higher than it is here, for instance, um, or even Christchurch post and, and New Zealand post earthquakes. It's there is a a way to create a culture or a society that that cares about and then talks regularly about about these things um on a more practical level what i have seen work in uh workshops that i've done is to have follow-up things so in the first session you tell people what to do so maybe something like a Make making your own emergency preparedness kit or making your own grab and go bag. Session one, you teach people what what to put in them, why it's important, what they need to do. And then you follow you have a follow-up session a couple weeks to a month later where everyone comes back, they bring their grab and go bag. It's a Bit of a show and tell, and they kind of go through it and and show what they've done. Even myself <laughs> as a presenter, this has been really motivational for me to make sure that I'm going through my kit, you know, regularly. So when I when I present on it, it it's updated, and I think that that works well for other people to have a deadline, um, but as well to show they want to show off. What they've put in, um, or they don't want to be the only person that shows up to the workshop that's forgotten to to put theirs together. So, so something like that, some some way that you can. Kind of bring people back together um or you know get people to to make a pledge to say that they're going to do something and then follow up with them later so hey you went to this workshop two weeks ago you said that you were going to talk to your family about a meeting place like did you do that and and telling them that you're going to do it too like i'm going to call you in two weeks to make sure that you've done this um, so i think there are there are pl- practical applications to do that. And then as much as you can in if you've got people in a room, <laughs> using them um, to, to use that time, you know, if you have something like a, a public alerting system that you want people to register for, to have them pull out their phones right there and wait until everyone does it, wait till they actually log in and do it. Or if there's a paperwork, like, you know, sign a paper, if you've got like a one page emergency plan and say, okay, step one of your emergency plan is to write down what two places that you're going to meet you and your household are going to meet in an emergency, take five minutes to st- have people write that down right there so it's not something that they think have to think about later um, and and come back to because chances are they might not even if they think it's really important um, everyone's really busy and there's lots going on and you know if it's not happening immediately right in front of them um it's it's really challenging so uh yeah i think there's options um and then bigger picture, you know, creating that sense of resilience um, or that com- that culture of resilience within your, your programs, within your organizations, within your community, you know, talk to your neighbors about it. Um, I've talked to people who said that like, yeah, every time someone comes over, I like show them my earthquake kit, because it's so extensive, and I'm so proud of it. Um, you know, getting people to to kind of show off those things and a little bit more. Um, and, and especially if you've got If you've got a a new neighbor that comes in, go introduce yourself, um, especially if they're not from, from wherever you are and tell them like, Hey, (laughs) maybe you should know that these kind of, these hazards exist. And these are some ways that I've been prepared and and here's some things to help you. So big and small things, but yeah, as much as we can socialize this stuff a little bit more um, and make it a bit more accessible and, um, yeah, and influence <laughs> influence people to to come in.
0: <laughs> awesome. So what I heard from that is shame people into being prepared. <laughs> Use your authority uh, if you're a team leader or something like that, and and create some protected time and direct people to be prepared, and then show off your preparedness, which is is kind of cool. And it honestly it flips the script on personal preparedness a little bit, which has always been portrayed as an individual, personal driven. Um, responsibility Uh, you know you have to go through that ladder of perception and personalization to actually make it important to you and then maybe you'll do it but there is this other mechanism that you can rely on other people to be the impetus for for being prepared and i really like this i think this is probably rather applicable to workplaces right Uh, Where you can have a leader make it a priority, provide some protected time, demand that certain tasks are done, provide the resources to make and the time to make sure that they're done, uh, and then sustain that by having those show and tells. I think that's a great idea. There's two sides to what we've been talking about so far there's the how we do it, and then the actual what we're teaching. Uh, and um, dear listeners, if you've heard some of our past podcasts, uh, Epic Podcast is not really a huge believer in the 72-hour kit, for example. Not a whole lot of evidence to suggest that time frame or or the uh, applicability of some of the stuff that you put in uh, a little go bag. Are there any other discrepancies in what we're actually teaching, the content side of things?
1: A hundred percent, yes. <laughs> um, yeah, I, as as you said, there's there's pretty little evidence to show that even if people do all of these things that we've asked them to do, how helpful is that in an emergency? Again, two of my favorite studies about this, one was the 1995 Chicago heat wave. Um, And I think one of the taglines on on one of the studies was, you know, heat is the, or uh, weather is a great equalizer. and, And we, you know, Other disasters are are equalizers, and uh, and we know that's not true because we know that uh, equity denied populations are more susceptible and are impacted um, differently and worse than people with privilege or or people with um different socioeconomic levels so so we know that uh, about disasters but that is not the only factor that says how well uh, a community will respond and recover from emergencies so one this one study of the 1995 heat waves they were going through and you know looking at different communities where people died and I think the assumptions at the beginning were, oh, these are all, it's the, the poor neighborhoods. Rich people do well and poor neighborhoods don't do well in emergencies. But this study showed that actually three of the 10 Chicago neighborhoods with the lowest deaths were low-income African American neighborhoods. So the lowest deaths across the city, three of them were low-income African American neighborhoods, which again are these equity-denied uh, populations. So they're looking, well, why, why is that? Why, how is that happening? Um, and the reason was because of high levels of community interaction and decreased Isolation. I think this is specifically prevalent in heat-related events, where uh, heat-related illness and deaths are generally caused, or we see happen in um, people living alone that don't have help, um, and unfortunately, uh, pass alone in in their homes. So you can imagine that if people are connected in their community, if we know who might be more susceptible to heat and who needs to be checked on, or, or, and then also who can help, those communities do better. So communities that are more connected, that are trust, they trust each other um, and they know how to help each other uh, are more resilient and recover more quickly from emergencies and the this was seen again as well in the 2011 uh, Japanese earthquake and tsunami Uh, one of the taglines of a research article by Daniel Aldrich said that uh, social ties not sandbags so again looking at different cities across the coast um, some of the cities No one died, um, even though they had 60 feet of tsunami inundation, and then in other cities, up to 10% of the population lost their lives. And again, the differences between these communities were the levels of trust and interaction, Um, and this is called either social cohesion or social capital is is what daniel aldridge uses so you know we talk about especially in japan they've put a lot of money into physical infrastructure uh, to you know prevent or to mitigate uh risks from things like tsunami but the social infrastructure or the uh, the social capital as actually more important. Um, and and will do a, a better, as a better indication of how well a community will respond and recover from these larger
0: events. So you're telling me that in disaster, it's who you know, not what you know once again. So what does that mean for us then? Does that mean we should be investing in block parties and not disaster kits?
1: 100% love Love block
0: parties. <laughs> block
1: parties are amazing ways for people to get to know their neighbors better. Um, and is usually one of the first things that I talk to people when they say, when they when I meet them or they ask me what I do for a living, and I say I try to get people prepared for emergencies. <laughs> and then they say, Oh, I, you know, I don't have a kit. I I don't, haven't done anything. And I know an earthquake here can happen, but oh, I haven't done anything. And I asked, well. Do you know who your neighbors are? Like, do you know, are you connected with people that live around you? Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. Um, that's, yeah, more of an indicator of of how well you're going to do uh, personally. But, um, yeah, block parties are are huge and is something that I've been trying to support from uh, a public education for emergency preparedness side and something that actually San Francisco does an amazing job of Uh, you know they don't have their like separate this department's working on this and this department's working on this and the neighborhoods, the the block party, that that resilience is more of a holistic. Let's do every <laughs> let's do everything at once and and capitalize on people's passions or or excitement. Um, I think that. There is a, a struggle or a, a trepidation to to let go of of something like the emergency kit and and the plan, and um, I I wouldn't say to to get rid of that entirely, and that's not something that I've um, I've done, but I've more focused on okay, well yeah, here's some checklists. If you want to put that together, fine, <laughs> you don't, you you do that, but yeah, connecting with your neighbors is important. So um, some ways that I think we can do that as practitioners are, you know, if you have these avenues that you're already connecting, if you're already doing education to add in this component on community resilience, um, yeah, who's in your kit, not what, um, adding that to to your curriculum and really highlighting it as, the number one most important thing that you can do um, and getting people to to appreciate the the importance of that. Um, but I think also leveraging the networks and the passion in the community already. Yeah, if you've got a knitting circle or you've got a bowling club or you've got, you know, a faith-based organization that's really connected into the community, you know, how can you you connect with these groups that already exist. You know, we have got natural um, community leaders and community champions who are trusted in the community. So it's not about, you know, recreating the wheel or, re- you know, creating things from scratch. It's finding these pockets of, of where people are already connected and, and kind of adding this component of, of community resilience on top of it.
0: Well, there you have it. Uh, If you're in a position of authority with your team, use that position, hold your team accountable to some personal preparedness activities, show off what you've got, and plan your next disaster block party soon. And maybe we can do this a little bit with Epic Podcast. Uh, We'll go onto Twitter here, and please show off what you've done to prepare. Please tell us what you've done to prepare others, and uh, maybe we can have a little social event at the end of all of this. Sarah, thank you so much for your time and expertise on this and thank you for all the presentations and things that you do to prepare your community. Thank you so much. Happy to be here.